Hi cousins, I'm Shemaya. It's like papaya, except it's not, and this is Plot Twist Please, a podcast where I use pop culture to help make our brains a little cozier. Plot Twist Please, insert theme song here. First thing, I've been working a lot, out a lot lately, and I'm realizing that protein, it exists. Did you know? Did you know protein? They weren't lying to us about it. So if I take a break during this episode and come back 20 minutes later, it's because I'm eating a scrumdily yum yum delicious sandwich with turkey in it. Another thing, subscribe, like, if you like what I'm saying to you. Now, let's get into it. Compassion fatigue. That's what we're talking about today. I'm going to warn you, this episode is going to hurt some feelings. I know of it. I'm sure of it. It will. But let me tell you a secret. You are always allowed to change your mind. Literally, you never have to keep the same viewpoint. You don't have to for the rest of your life. You really don't. In fact, I'm pretty sure that's round upon most of the time. So let's talk about me for a bit. I used to think compassion fatigue was something that people who experience very little marginalization, let's just say that, um, made up. But I'll tell you, I'll say it, all right? I'll, I'll say it out loud. I was wrong. I know, I know. And not to go all college essay on you, but in order to talk about this thing, I need to make sure we are all actually on the same page about what this thing is. So compassion fatigue used to be something that mostly struck healthcare workers during the pandemic. You know, Miss Miss Panini herself just giving us a rank for her, our money. Um, law, enforce, law enforcement officers and at-home caregivers. But as the pandemic continues, continues, not continued, um, and the 24-hour news cycle brings nonstop views of suffering from around the world, we're all at risk of developing compassion fatigue as it is colloquially understood. So this is the part of the episode where I let you know that I'm probably going to say a few times in here that if I can get words out of my mouth first, um, I'm probably going to say a few terms in here that maybe you are not familiar with. And for that reason, I like to include lots of sources in my descriptions of this episode. So either on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or on YouTube, I'm going to include some links to some more uh, expansive description so that we can be on the same page, on the same wavelength, you know? If we're going to be cooking in the same kitchen, I want us to be eating the same food, you feel? Just sure, sure, sure that makes sense. And I'm also just going to explain it in the episode as extensively as I can. So compassion fatigue is similar to a more known word, burnout. But a burnout usually stems from having too much work or too many responsibilities. Ooh, too many responsibilities. That was me, middle school, high school, college, my whole life. Eh. Compassion fatigue comes from helping others. You want to keep helping, but you're overwhelmed from being exposed to the trauma of others, i.e. secondary trauma stress, which is a real thing. Like, I'm not putting quotes around that because I think it's fake. Like, that's an actual thing that clinicians are aware of. Like burnout, compassion fatigue is a process. It takes time to develop keeps building slowly and then grows kind of like a dust bunny, you know, to a point where you start to not care about yourself or others in your life. You end up overusing your compassion, skills, and reserves, so you no longer have much to provide. This is a direct quote from, oh gosh, yes, I'm going to try. I'm going to try my best. Yasini Srivasala, Srivasal, 
uh, a psychiatrist with Banner Behavioral Health Hospital in Scottsdale, Arizona. From this source, I really tried my best. It's better to try and fail than to not try at all. Um, from this source, I understand compassion fatigue can feel like the following. And I'm just going to list like a few buzzwords that may, you know, zap your memory or may, you know, feel feel at home to you. And if that feels like home to you, I'm so sorry. I'm feeling physical, psychological, emotional exhaustion, feeling helpless, hopeless, or powerless, feeling irritable, angry, sad, numb, a sense of feeling detached or of feeling a certain bleakness toward life and decreased pleasure in activities that you would usually find pleasure in or find joy in, you know, ruminating about the suffering of others and feeling anger toward events or, you know, people who are causing the suffering, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I can go on and there, you know, there are lots of other symptoms that I'm not going to be able to explain in this video because it's, you know, and, you know, as I, as I list these symptoms of compassion fatigue, I'm not sure if compassion fatigue has quote symptoms, but signs of compassion fatigue, you know, as I, as I look at these signs of compassion fatigue, it kind of becomes clearer to me as to why people kind of blow up on the internet and why it's hard for them to be empathetic toward people who seem ignorant on certain issues, especially when those issues are concerning marginalized people, because you just, you have had it. You just have had it. You know, you're tired of being, feeling like the only one who cares. Um, and, um, it can lead to you having a warped spiritual or worldview even, you know, when it feels like no one cares, when it feels like you are the only one pushing the needle forward. And when, especially when you don't have community with other people who are doing the same work that you're doing, it can feel pointless and you can begin to have a negative viewpoint of advocacy in general um, or a negative association with advocacy. I need to, I should have read the book Pleasure Activism in preparation for this, but I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to read it and I'm going to come back with notes. But I have heard that that is a good reference point for people who are trying to understand how to go about activism long term. Because anger itself is not sustainable. Anger is not a sustainable emotion for activism, you know? Um, and I honestly, I resent the notion that activism only requires anger because it requires empathy, like like empathy that stretches, empathy that is constantly elastic, constantly reshaping itself. If that makes any sense, I hope it does. It's not, it's 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 those warm and fuzzy things that you do for people you care about. That is a form of advocacy or that's a form of activism. It is supplying food and clothing and water to the communities that need it or the communities where the where those resources are scarce. You know, it's providing education. It is being a safe space for conversations to be had. It's not just yelling. And I think that people who don't find themselves really digging their heels into activism and really what it can mean for them in their life long term, I found that those people don't understand how activism can be all these different, different things. I think it must be all of these different things. So yeah, it doesn't surprise me that people who maybe you're getting their first wave of act activism at this point in their lives, how they can think negatively about the activism space. Because to them, all they see is the yelling and the protesting and the unrest, but they don't see how activism is also loving, how activism is also, how activism is also affirming. It can be affirming and it can be rejuvenating. 
all of these things to me are activism, emulate activism. And, and, and I just feel like maybe the activism that is the loudest is the kind that gets all the attention, but it's not just yelling at somebody on the internet. In fact, I don't think, I don't think the people who are actually doing the work are having these, these arguments online, are in people's comments, doing all caps, talking about open a book or talking about, you just need to have empathy for people who are marginalized. I don't think the people who are doing the deepest work, like doing the most, like the most vital work are doing that, which is so interesting because I think that's all people think about. That's all some people think about when we, when, when they think about activism. It doesn't always have to be, yeah, I think I've, I think I've made my point. <laughs> with that. Sorry, my notes. I'm scrolling to my notes because I've just been rambling. I've been rambling. So yeah, that's kind of my excerpt on how I think activism gets misunderstood in the activist space and outside of it. So back to our good old friend, Compassion Fatigue. Sounds like a fun time, right? She sounds like a G, right? Um, that sarcasm. How'd I do? How'd I do? How'd I do? Uh, people who aren't autistic out there. How, how was my social cue? Did I do it right? Okay. Thank you. Yeah, I've been working on my skills. So let me talk about me again. I'm sorry, so sorry, but I promise it's necessary. So I'm gonna talk a little bit about my autistic experience. As an autistic person, I'm a woman and a black person in America, there are just so many things that can potentially exhaust me throughout the day. And people who also fall into those intersections and marginalizations, I can imagine, they have similar experiences. Not the same, but similar from the same food group, you feel? We're tired over here, babes. <laughs> we are exhausted. The edges are sweating out, okay? So just to list a few ways in which an autistic person might be exhausted throughout the day or things that could contribute to that exhaustion at the end of the day, let me just give you a few examples. Things that can make me feel like someone's plopping my brain into a jar and shaking it around for fun. <laughs> Wow, what an image, I'm so sorry. What surfaces that make me wanna peel my skin off? You know, things that you could come across after showering or washing your face. Um, loud noises that make me want to rip my ears off. I'm so sorry, that's just so, so aggressive, oh my gosh. I'm sorry, but that's just how it feels. It feels very aggressive. It feels, oh God, my, my, my nerve endings just like are on the alert all of the time <laughs> for these reasons. You know, indirect communication between people in my life, either on professional levels or personal levels, it's, it can just be a lot, you know, just for a little girl trying to just move through the world looking cute and bringing vibes. It just, it can be a lot. <laughs> like, especially when you factor in trying to decode what people who are not autistic mean when they say certain things, it just adds this other layer. For many autistic people, these are everyday stressors, every day, and obstacles that can potentially prevent us from, you know, showing up as our quote, best selves. Even though maybe that day that is our best self, maybe it's the best version of ourself that we can come up with, you know? I'm talking work environments, I'm talking relationships, I'm talking hygiene, okay? Okay, it's not easy. And you know, what do you get when you combine all these ingredients? <laughs> a mental health crisis where there are very few resources and a prolonged period of time? Fatigue. I know, zoinks. Zoinks is exactly the right response. 
Now, the fatigue gets worse. Not worse, you know. One person's fatigue isn't more, quote, quote, than another person's fatigue. I'm, I'm trying to be intentional with my language here, y'all. I really am. But when we factor in different intersections of marginalization, then it gets a little more complicated. Pause. Pause. Before you get spooked, okay, I'm just referring to the intersections of race, gender, and other forms of marginalization that play key roles in our lives. You know, all that quirky stuff. The, the extra weight from those intersections of marginalization are rooted in things like worrying if someone's going to misunderstand what you mean when you say something because you're used to people misunderstanding you, or fear that someone is going to harm you just for existing. I think it might impact whether or not you are able to plaster a smile on your face every day at work, you know? Maybe, maybe it might be a contributor. That's my hypothesis under why. But who am I? But a, a random person on the internet. Now, I don't know how this happened, but I think there was a narrative that emerged in the past few years that activism was supposed to be easy, that it's about being the loudest in the room, the quickest typer, or the one who uses the most relevant buzzwords. Doing the reading is important, don't get me wrong, and being educated on topics is extremely important and vital, but we often forget that essentially it's about sacrifice. And Something that frustrates me is that as soon as sacrifices involved, the people who were yelling the loudest suddenly grow quiet. At Shirley Chisholm, an unbought and unbossed, said, racism is so universal in this country, so widespread and deep-seated that it is invisible because it is so normal. If you don't know who that is, I've provided a link in the description take a look. Why don't you take a gander? But I also say the same for many systems of injustice. Making them normal is what keeps them powerful. You know, the, the idea behind boycotting is disruption. So if business as usual is changing for you as a result, I would argue that that's a good thing. Throw a wrench in it, you know? Mix things up. Your routine is supposed to be shaken up a bit. I think that's the point. You know, discomfort to people who are not used to discomfort can feel like oppression. In the same vein, discomfort to people feels like fatigue, I think. This kind of weaponized discomfort makes people who are already marginalized more at risk, forcing them to stay silent on their oppression for the sake of communal comfort. And of course, of course, communal comfort in this instance, in this instance isn't even communal. It just benefits the people who have the most privilege which is gross and we don't want. And hold on, I know, I know, don't shove me in a locker yet. I realize that the word weaponize can be triggering for people and I don't mean that facetiously. I know that word can actually confuse a lot of people. So I just wanna be clear on something. You can weaponize something unintentionally, you know, whether it is your goal or not. Weaponization, of your identity most of the time happens due to neglect rather than malicious intent. Still, the impact is still violence. The impact is still harm. Now let's talk about the disability part of compassion fatigue, okay? You know, because disabled people exist. It's okay, if you forgot, most people do. So it's, you know, it's fine. Um, it's not fine, I just, you know, it just happens a lot. 
there is a distinction to be made here between excuses to not divest from certain things, i.e. selectivism, if you've heard that term before, and genuine necessity. Now, vocabulary, ding, 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 I'm excited. Are you excited? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So if you don't know what selectivism is, so selectivism, as I've understood it, is the kind of behavior that can be interpreted as valuing personal comfort over the collective good or over the liberation or well-being of marginalized people. And I, okay, so <laughs> there's a word, there's a word, bruh. It just, I feel like it's just rooted in shame. And I think, okay, okay, okay. Here's my thing. Here's my big spiel on shame versus guilt. I think that guilt is useful. I don't think shame is useful because to me, guilt feels very, like it can be mobile, but shame to me is very stagnant and just like kind of pulls down at you. I know that seems like semantics, but it it doesn't feel the same to me. I don't know what to tell you. Many people online have compared this to its perceived polar opposite being on the grounds. So on the grounds activism. So it's like posting on your Instagram story versus protesting, you know, that would be considered quote, slacktivism. The posting would, hope I'm being clear. Honestly, disabled people exist and we are in a pandemic still and the world is on fire. So I get how divesting from certain things can be tricky. I get it. But when we look closer at this, it becomes clear to me that disabled people are often erased in activist spaces. If you didn't know that before, you know it now. Uh, if you don't include us, then you are ignoring us, just like everyone else. You know, many people try to remedy this discrepancy if they say something like, if you're not on the grounds, then you're not a real activist, by saying things like, oh, I wasn't talking to disabled people, obviously. But I'd argue that that is exactly the point. I wasn't talking about you is a form of erasure. You know, it's like saying that women are paid this much versus men when you're not including women of color, you're not including all types of women. So I just want to remind you that no one is ever talking to disabled people, ever. And I want to say rarely, I want to use that word, but we are so invisible. And this is real pain I'm talking about. This is real erasure. Your pain is real and my pain is real too. And we can talk about them at the same time. And I'll add the onus is often on disabled people to fill in the gaps in many spaces, you know, to just take it or just do what everyone else needs us to do at our own expense and never ask for anything. I'm just confused as to why that is the expectation everywhere. Okay, rant over, uh, but also I have the right to rant. Let me be mad. Anger is not divisive. It is information. I think some people are of the opinion that if, quote, liberals would just agree on everything, you know, stop being so divisive, then we would get more, then maybe liberals, quote, quote, would get more done. But I don't agree. I don't agree. Um, I'm more of the opinion that you can critique a movement while still co-signing its validity you know, while not disagreeing with its whole premise, you can encourage people to boycott or get quote on the grounds without excluding disabled people. You know, don't, don't, be, don't be another person who excludes us from the discussion, you know? Also, and as well, there is a more empathetic way to critique people. I, you know, there's a, I simply just don't think that to support a movement, you have to deem it completely void of criticism. 
or critique or complexity. And I also feel like any marginalized person is allowed to voice when they feel like one of their identities is being erased in a discussion. Because it can be hard to, to hit all the points. Like, I get it. <laughs> and that doesn't put us backwards to admit that. You know, some same way talking about intersectional feminism doesn't quote slow us down. Same way talking about black women's struggles doesn't doesn't take away from the black struggle as a whole. You know, doesn't slow that conversation. We can have all of these conversations at once, and in fact, we must. Personally, I feel <laughs> I feel inadequate when people talk about quotes activism. I do. I feel erased. I feel like I'm not enough. I feel like I'm not doing enough. It doesn't, you know, it, it doesn't have to do with perception for me. It doesn't have to do with well, what if people think that I don't care. It, it's about how I feel in my disabled body. It's about how I feel. And I, I want to point out that for me, as is for many people, I'd assume my relationship to activism is inextricably linked to my marginalized body and the trauma it has endured. That includes erasure. That includes lack of access to resources, lack of access to healthcare, you know, mental health care, <laughs> um, mental health that includes internalized ableism and guilt simply for existing that a lot of autistic people struggle with every day. Everything needs to come from a compassionate level and a willingness to learn in those spaces because no one is going to be the perfect activist. Nobody, you know, and if you're wondering ways to be involved online that don't include social media, I'll make a post about that on the Plot Twist Please Instagram, so follow that, um, along with ways to get involved that don't involve being online at all, you know, the, which is, I think, more difficult and requires more access to resources and more labor, um, I'd assume, but I'll include those anyhow. And if you have any ideas, you know, bouncing around in your brain socket, please put them in the comments. So. What is sustainable for me? I think that's an important question that we need to ask ourselves. And also, how far can I stretch my empathy today? I bet that it's farther than you think. I think often about the neurodivergent people in Palestine right now and in ex extenuating cir circumstances around the world who don't have warm beds to sleep in at night and who don't have any way to process their sensory input today. As I ask myself these uncomfortable questions, I realize my personal bar for what I can handle as a neurodivergent person in the West is constantly moving by the day, by the minute. And frankly, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. So yeah, I that's that's how I'm handling this. I wish you the best. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. Do get in those comments about ways to get involved, please. I, I welcome all suggestions. And be blessed. One. Two, stay weird.